Welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. What you're about to hear was originally recorded and broadcast for Pythagoras' Trousers, a Radio Cardiff science show and podcast. You can hear the full show and listen to past episodes at pythagoras-trousers.co.uk. Well, this month what I'd like to do is talk about one of the upcoming missions to go to Mars. Now, we're used to big NASA missions going to Mars, and there are a couple of European missions in orbit, but this is a mission with a difference. This is a, Euro- a, this is a European rover that's going to land on the planet, due for launch in 2018. The rover itself is going to be built here in the UK, and I'm joined on the line by Paul Meacham from Airbus Defence and Space, who's systems engineer for the project. Welcome to the programme, Paul. Thank you. Hi. We, we should talk a little bit, I suppose, about what the, the mission is actually going to, to do. Um, mm. So we currently have missions on Mars, the, the Curiosity mission, which landed a couple of, couple of years ago, which is essentially a geophysicist or a geochemist looking at the rocks. ExoMars is going to, to look more than that. It's actually going to start looking for biology on Mars. That's one of its prime missions, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So we are very much the biologist uh, in this case. Um, so we, I mean, we have learnt from these previous missions, and, and their their scientific results have really helped uh, focus our mission um, on, on where we want to go and what we want to do. But yes, and as you say, we're primarily looking for uh, organics, uh, the signs of life on, on on the surface and also under the surface of Mars. Um, this is quite a critical area because we we believe that there is a, a permafrost layer, if you like, buried in the rock, uh, somewhere in the top three meters of soil. Uh, and if our assumptions are correct, there could well be life uh, living in it or has lived in it in the past. So we want to get down to that layer, take some samples and look for the, what we call biomarkers in the samples we take. And th- these biomarkers are incredibly sensible, uh, incredibly sensitive. So we're not looking for, for fossils. We're not looking for dinosaur bones or anything. It's <laughs> much more subtle than that, right? Yes, yes. It's really the, the, the constituent building blocks of life of, of, uh, that, we're, that we're looking for, the very base compounds that life uh, is formed of. And we know that Mars in its early history had a lot of those, the chemicals required, so the organic mm-hmm. chemicals such as carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and the, and the right conditions for, for life to exist. I guess the big question is, is did it? Um, and, and as you say, that it's below the surface that's the, the place to look now. Yes, we think so. I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that suggests water uh, once flowed on the surface of Mars. We see features that look like river meanders and, and lake beds and so on. But clearly it's a very uh, arid place these days. Um, and one of the ideas is that this, this level of water has sort of sunk into the, uh, the, the, the water table that has dropped um, below the, below the, the surface. Um, and is now frozen uh, because the, the, the atmosphere is so very thin that the water cannot, cannot actually exist in liquid form um, on the surface of Mars currently. So that's why we think there's sort of a, this permafrost layer, um, which is where, uh, if our, again, our assumptions are correct, where the, the, if life, if it is on Mars, uh, will be found. Um, we also think that, I mean, generally the, the top sort of metre and a half tends to be um, subject to cosmic radiation and oxidants and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's unlikely that life would want to live in that, in that top sort of metre or so. So we want to get beneath that into this permafrost layer and, and see what we can find. And to get into that permafrost layer, you said it's a, it's a, a metre or several metres down. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly this thing isn't going to go with a shovel. Um, how's it <laughs> no. going to get down there? Um, so we are taking uh, quite an advanced drill with us uh, that is actually able to take samples from two metres below the surface and bring them back up. It's kind of similar, I guess, uh, to, a, to sort of an oil rig type drill in that you have a single drill piece uh, that drills down and then the extension rods that rotate into place 
um, and then sort of synthesize essentially a drill of two meters in length, but it stores in a much uh, smaller volume. Um, so that's that's primarily how it works. It's uh, it's very similar to an oil rig. Okay, so so in that in that sense, it's tested technology, and that two mm. meters is nothing for an oil rig, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, two indeed, kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so that technology is is used, but it's not been used on another planet before, and that that mm. must induce introduce its own challenges. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I mean, we've taken very small drills before. I mean, Curiosity has a, sort of a rock boring drill, but nothing anything like on the on, on the scale of this. So yes, it, it does pose some challenges, particularly in terms of of reliability and, and making sure that the drill is not going to get stuck or any of, of, of these things that really would seriously impact our mission. So there's, there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done to make it um, as robust as possible. One of the things that must affect it, uh, not just the drill, but the rover in general in terms of any moving part, is there's a lot of dust around on Mars. Mm. Um, that dust is, is pretty fine-grained stuff. It doesn't clump together like soil might on the Earth or anything because there's no, there's no biological material to make it clump. Um, the, the dust must be pretty horrible stuff from a, an engineering point of view. Uh, yes, it certainly is, particularly as our rover is, is solar-powered. So when, whenever this, this, this dust or deposits on our solar panels, it really impacts the amount of uh, power we can generate. So it, it means that actually we have to firstly pick very carefully where we land, because fortunately um, dust storms on Mars are, are, are seasonal. So um, they tend to go from the autumn equinox around to the spring equinox. So we, at the start of our mission, and our nominal mission, it is in the other half of the year, if you like, uh, from the spring equinox onwards, um, to make sure we avoid the worst of these dust storms, uh, to make sure we can achieve our science goals uh, before it starts to get, uh, you know, the, the solar panels start to get covered in dust. And you're also equatorial, of course, is the landing the landing place, so that, that yeah. aids your, your sunlight from the, the solar panels. It certainly does, yes. I mean, it, it's not a surprise that, that pretty much all the rovers that have, that have gone to Mars have been located around the equatorial region, regions, because if you're going to have something with, you know, sort of 12 to 18 motors on it, it really needs to be um, located somewhere where there's plenty of sunlight to drive them. So, yes, I mean, really, for, for, for this sort of rover mission, it, it has to be near the equator. The the exception to that has been Curiosity, the the latest uh, the latest rover that landed there a couple of years ago. That's actually got a little nuclear power pack on the back of it, essentially a, a, a radioisotope thermal generator uh, yeah, on the back right, of it, yeah. a, a mini nuclear power plant. Now that's something that the European Space Agency doesn't support because of the radioactive materials involved is that the main reason do you know the reasons behind that um i, I i'm not entirely familiar with them but I, I i think generally it's politically unfavorable to do so inside europe at the current time um however it's it's, it's not a perfect solution even from an engineering perspective because um you may notice that the curiosity rtg um is stuck on the back with all but one face exposed to the martian atmosphere and that's because they get extremely hot and dissipating the heat from them um, is, is very, very difficult to do. So when we do use them, they, they, even though they give you a much more reliable source of power than, say, a solar panel would, um, they, they do have their own unique challenges. And they don't actually give you that much more power than a solar panel in bright sunlight on Mars. The, the, power, the power supply from that, from Curiosity, although being throughout the day, so it doesn't, when it gets dark it still provides power, the actual power supply is not that much greater, I believe. Uh, with, with with current technology, yes, that 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 that, that is broadly true. Yes. So the the solar panels are certainly a, a way to go. Now, in terms of the dust settling on top, one of the things that the the Spirit and Opportunity rovers found is that the little dust devils, little mini tornadoes, if you like, and bits of wind, a little bit of wind came through and 
and blew the dust off the top of the solar panels to give them more life. So their 90-day mission for Opportunity is now 10 and a half years, nearly 11 years uh, long. Mm, yeah. um, is that is How is ExoMars going to cope with the possibility of dust settling on its panels? Um, well, I mean, we, we will have to rely on, on some of those same things, the, 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 the dust devils. Unfortunately, they are not very predictable. And, and, in, and in the case of Spirit and Opportunity, they discovered them almost by accident, that they suddenly mm. had a jump in power one day and couldn't explain it, and they managed to take a picture of one of these things. Um, so they, they're not very predictable in terms of where they're going to appear. Um, but the other thing we, we have the capability to do is to tilt our solar panels, uh, which does help um, in terms of getting the dust off them but also it allows us to track the sun when it's much lower in the sky. We can do what's referred to as preferential parking, where in, in, in the evening we'll park the rover up and tilt the solar panel so it catches the, the dawn sun as it comes above the horizon. And that really does help us maximise the power that is available there as well. Okay, so it's very much learning from the lessons of, of previous of missions. Of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... The, the rover is now, we learned this month, being built here in the UK. Which, which bits of the rover are actually being built uh, in, in Stevenage, which is where you're based, I guess? Well, pretty much all of it is going to be assembled here. Um, the way these projects tend to work is that we have a number of different suppliers all the way across Europe, and in fact in Canada as well. Um, and they will, will produce uh, the different elements of the rover. They'll all be delivered here to Stevenage, uh, where we'll, we'll integrate them together and make sure everything works correctly. And that this rover is, as I say, it's due for launch in 2018. So there's there's about three years left to to actually get it all all working. Is that a, is that a tight schedule for this kind of thing? Uh, it certainly is, yes. And uh, we, we're unusually constrained uh, because of the, the the times when you can go to Mars. You can't just go when you like. Uh, the the launch window only comes about every two and a bit years, which means that if we were to miss 2018, we would then go to 2020 and so on. Um, so it is quite a, a tight deadline, and uh, yes, we do have a, uh, quite a lot to do. But we are we're looking on schedule at the moment. Okay, and then this is this is quite a coup for for UK industry to be to be one of the the, the lead contractors for a big European mission. I mean, there aren't that many European missions, and uh, it's it must be uh, good for your company as well, but for the UK in general, for the space industry. Yes, absolutely, and uh, and it's we've been very fortunate that, that the government, um, uh, both both the, the the various governments we've had over the past few years, um, have all seen the benefit of the space industry and 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 how much uh, money it brings into the economy, but also having um, the development of our high technology industries is is very good for the UK's uh, competence as well. So. Yes, we have been lucky in that respect, and, uh, and as a result, we've been able to uh, play a very big role in these sorts of missions. Now, at Airbus, you're looking after the, the rover itself and the, sort of the infrastructure of the rover. Mm-hmm. You're not actually designing any of the, any of the science instruments. That's correct, uh, yes. Yeah. Now, your role as system engineer, my understanding is that the, sci- the, the science teams who are designing the science instruments will send you a package with the instrument in, and then you have to bolt it all together and collect, connect up all the wires and I appreciate it. it's much more complex than bolting something <laughs> together um, and then make everything work together that doesn't sound like an easy task because every instrument is going to be subtly different I imagine that's right yes they all have their own requirements they'll have their d- different sorts of data interface they have different uh, power needs and, and so on um, but yes and, and, and there are various scenarios we have to go through which will be typical of how they'll be used in the mission so it's, it's, it's quite a complicated campaign to make sure that all these different units um, work together properly and, and talk to each other, and, and obviously we can get the data back back to Earth. 
the other thing that has to be done with with rovers like this is that they have to be pre-programmed it's it can be a, a 20 minute or more round trip journey for the for the radio signals to get to mars and back again so so driving a mars rover with a, a joystick uh, is not not feasible um the the current missions curiosity and and opportunity have have developed over the years their their software to drive them again i is exomars going to build much more on that yes um so we, we we take it a little bit further i mean as you say all rovers have needed this this some degree of autonomy to make their their missions as, as efficient as possible and we've sort of added a few new features particularly um when the rover is, is driving and it's following a path um we do something called trajectory control which means that when the rover is is, is driving the path if it, it starts to get disturbed from the path it's trying to follow it automatically realizes this is happening and brings itself back onto the path um so we don't accidentally wander off the edge of a cliff or something like that so right. um we, we, we it's, it's it's critical for these missions to have as much of the decision making as possible on the rover and we've just added this this, this new element to it that makes them even more efficient and and how long is the rover expected to to last is there a, a prime mission lifetime Yes, there is, yes. Uh, so the, the, the nominal mission is 218 sols, which is the Martian day. Um, and to, to give you an idea, the spirit and opportunity were about 180 uh, sols. So, and obviously, a, a, as you said, um, one of them is, is still going 10 years later. So there's, there's a very good chance we'll exceed that design lifetime. But in, in reality, we have to complete all our mission goals within that first 218 uh, sols. Well, a sol on Mars is only half an hour longer than a, a day on Earth. The, yeah, and it right. takes in 24 and a half hours. So 218 sols on Mars is about 200 days here on Earth. So, um, yeah, about, about a six-month period, yeah, I guess. That's right, yes. It's yeah. about half a year on Mars, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, there, there, were, there were clearly going to be, to be lots of challenges with, with uh, building the rover and getting there and, um, uh, and then operating on the surface. Uh, I guess at the moment you're focusing on, on building it, but, but where do you think the, the biggest challenges are going to arise in the whole process? Well, that's interesting because in, in some ways we don't really know until we get there. We know um, roughly where our landing sites are going to be. There are, there are four that have been selected so far, and one of those will, will be chosen for our, our nominal landing site. But until we get there, until we get drive off the lander and actually look around, it's 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 a little bit unknown, if you know what I mean, um, in terms of where we want to look. Obviously, the, the science team will, will guide us about where, where we need to go and where we need to drill and so on. But um, it's, it's, it's very much open-ended in that because it's, it's an exploration mission, primarily. Hmm. And, and the sites, you mentioned there's four sites that have been selected. They've been selected for a combination of their, their scientific potential in, in terms of being interesting places to visit and maybe go and look for life. But also there's a lot of engineering constraints because you can't just land a rover like this anywhere on Mars. That's correct. I mean, we have to verify against what's called a reference terrain, which is a, a certain distribution of rocks and slopes and, and so on. And we have to be able to handle that 90% of that. Um, and, of course, the landing site has to respect that because that's what the rover has been, has been chosen to operate under. So, I mean, obviously, if, if, you, if you picked a landing site with a terrain that was very much different from the one that the rover had been qualified for... Um, it may uh, find it much harder um, because it's, it's simply not designed for that environment. So they do have to, yes, to respect the engineering uh, constraints that we have as well. And then to, to test that, you say it's been going to be qualified for a certain surface, certain surface. Now, we understand the surface of Mars very well from the rovers that have been there, but also from the orbital photography. 
the orbital imagery from the the spacecraft like Mars Express and Mars Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which get very very high resolution images. So that allows you to uh, create a, a, the surface of Mars here on Earth, essentially. That's right. Yes, we have um, uh, have a Mars yard here in Stevenage where we have the the sort of distribution of rocks and slopes including stuff which we, we know is deliberately beyond the capabilities of the rover to make sure it correctly uh, realises that it's, it's beyond its capabilities and, and will avoid it. We have, have that facility to, to, to replicate um, the, the, the surface of Mars and then once we can drive our rovers around and, and see what works and see what doesn't. So you can, you can test drive it. Um, one thing you can't do is change the gravitational pull of the Earth. Does, does that, the, the gravity on Earth is, sorry, the gravity on Mars is about a third that on, on Earth. Is that uh, a, a problem for you with testing? Uh, no, because actually the, the, the solution is quite simple. We have uh, prototype uh, rovers which are deliberately kept light. Um, as you say, the, the gravity of, of Mars is about 38% of what it is here, um, which means that we simply we, we make the, uh, the, the prototype rovers 38% lighter. Um, and as a result, they behave the same way on Earth as the real ones would do on Mars. The actual flight rover, uh, because it's built in such a clean environment, um, will only travel sort of two or three feet. It will not move, move very far at all. Um, but the work done with these prototypes means that we already know exactly how the rover is going to behave when it gets to Mars and therefore how we're going to control it. You, you mentioned that the flight rover is built in a, a very clean in, environment, and that's that's an, an important factor because if you're going to look for biology on Mars, evidence of life on Mars, then what you don't want to do is take bacteria from Earth, land them on Mars, and then just find those same bacteria. How, how do you rule that out? Because you can't get rid of all the bacteria, presumably. No. So we have a, 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 a limit of 1,000 spores per uh, square metre of the rover. Um, some of the instruments are even cleaner than that, but the actual outer surface of the rover has to be that clean. Normally, you'd find 1,000 spores, um, typically on about an eighth of, uh, an eighth of a pinhead, um, so, wow. so obviously it's, it's quite quite clean. We have to make it. Um, but that said, we we have various methods of, of sterilising it. Uh, we often bake um, the, uh, the the different equipments out at about 125 degrees for a, a number of hours, and that tends to to, to uh, remove a lot of the spores. Um, but we can also use gamma rays and things like that. Often, the the biggest problem is once it's clean, is keeping it clean, which is why we have to build this this bio clean room which is uh, very much different from our normal clean room in that you practically have to wear a sort of a spacesuit to go in. It's, I mean, you're not allowed to breathe or sneeze or anything like that on the rover because it will, it will cont- uh, um, completely contaminate it. So uh, that, that does pose some rather interesting challenges for, for actually building the spacecraft and assembling it uh, within this clean environment. So similar, similar uh, difficulties to, I imagine, that astronauts face up on the space station, obviously without the zero gravity, but in terms of being in a cumbersome suit, trying to do very sensitive uh, uh, um, operations on a rover to you know, connect some connectors or tighten some component or something, that, that must be, yeah, as you say, quite challenging. Yeah, we have, to, we have to feed that into the design process. So when, you, when you're designing how the rover's going to fit together, you have to think about how it's going to be assembled Otherwise, you'll, you'll get to a certain point and realise, yes, that, that, that you can't get to very easily to, to that particular nut or bolt or whatever. Um, and, and, and generally, it, 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 does, it does mean that we have to think about it a lot earlier and how we're going to do this. I mean, there, there, are, there are rather simple things we can do, like make sure that the, the connectors only mate in one direction. So you can't accidentally put them up, in upside down and that sort of thing. So it, it can be quite simple, but we do have to think about it quite early on.
Now, this, the ExoMars rover is is not the first thing from Europe that's going to go to Mars. There is going to be an orbiter which launches in 2016. It takes about um, seven to nine months, depending on the exact trajectory, to to get to Mars. And that orbiter contains a test lander, so a, essentially a, a, a test device that will have some scientific atmospheric measurement uh, measuring devices on it. But will that uh, test lander be useful for you in evaluating how the landing is going to go for the much heavier rover itself? Absolutely, um, yes, because the, the, the design and, and, and the landing system is, is very, very similar to what the rover will use, obviously, just on, on, on a slightly smaller scale in the case of the 2016 mission. Um, but particularly, one of, the, one of the greatest sources of error is, is the dynamics with, with the Martian atmosphere. So anything we learn from, from its descent down into into the Martian atmosphere and then down to the surface, well, that would be absolutely critical in helping us make sure the rover will get down to the surface safely and also in the correct location. Well, I wish you luck with uh, overcoming all the challenges that might come up. And, and just quickly, uh, when do you think you'll have a, a version of the rover ready to see? Well, we already have uh, three prototypes in our Marsyard in Stevenage, actually. Um, and we're just about to, to, to start uh, getting the first engineering equipment in from our suppliers. Hopefully in the next couple of years we'll start to get flight equipment. It will be absolutely fantastic. So, uh, But we already do have some hardware already, which is, is, is quite unique in a project like this. Well, in that case, perhaps I'll plan a trip over to Stevenage to come and have yeah. a, a peer through a window or something. Definitely. Uh, certainly look forward to seeing it. Uh, Paul Meacham from Airbus Defence and Space, thanks very much. Thank you. Just a few days after recording that interview with Paul, there was news from Mars itself. The Curiosity rover has confirmed the detection, previously made by orbiting spacecraft, of methane in the Mars' atmosphere. It's not constantly there, but it saw what are being termed burps of methane, short spikes in the concentration. Now there are two possible origins of this. The first is geological, that stresses on the rocks or contact with water below the surface are causing the rocks to release methane into the atmosphere. The second, perhaps more tantalising, is that it could be the result of microbial life on Mars. It's very hard to distinguish the two at the moment. Future missions will, of course, tell us. But perhaps even more tantalising is the possibility that even if the methane release is due to geological activity, the question remains of how the methane got embedded in the rocks in the first place. It could originally have come as the result of microbial life billions of years ago. This is just another example of how ExoMars is going to answer so many of our questions about the Red Planet.